Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to The Broad Experience, the show about women, the workplace and success. I'm Ashley Miltite. This time, two career couples are everywhere. It's the norm in much of the Western world. But does each half truly support the other? I'm hearing it more and more that not only is there a reluctance or a discomfort when women are making more than men um, in a relationship, but it's actually hurting relationships but maybe we shouldn't be surprised. The 20th century was the rise of women. The 21st century is the adaptation of everybody else to that rise, companies, uh, countries, and men. It's going to be a little complicated, right? It's going to take a few more generations. People who keep thinking that this is going to happen in one generation, no way. Coming up, how careers and relationships intertwine. A few months ago, I came across an article in the Harvard Business Review with this provocative title. If you can't find a spouse who supports your career, stay single. When I got in a discussion with some of you about this on Facebook recently, and you were all women, your responses varied from, well, of course, to support can mean a lot of different things, to men just see it as a given that women will support their careers. And as I was starting to work on this show, one of you introduced me to my first guest. So just to kick off, tell me for the record, tell me your name and and what you do. Diane Reichenberger, and I'm the CP Global Vice President for Mattel. CP stands for Consumer Products, and Mattel is the toy company that brought us Barbie, among many other brands. Diane is based in LA. She's 57, and she mentors a lot of younger women at the company. And she says it's a common theme among her highly educated, ambitious mentees that their boyfriends, they're not exactly celebrating their progress. She says one young woman she mentored was dating a guy who was in the military. He'd been in Iraq. She waited for him. They talked about marriage. And when he returned after, I think, two tours, they moved in together. Um, Her career continued to grow and bloom. She was growing exponentially. And he shared with her that he did not want to get married until he made more money than she did. Diane was stunned. For one thing, this woman had supported her boyfriend for years while he was abroad. But yes, the woman was earning more. And Diane says that was going to be the case for some time, given he was starting from scratch after leaving the military. And she had a very good job at this point, uh, making quite a bit of money for someone her age because she was so good and we had promoted her several times. So it, it really got me thinking about, is this something that's common or is this something that, um, you know, is somewhat unusual? So as I've been working with many young women and mentoring them, um, we mostly talk about careers, but certainly their personal life comes into it as they're thinking about navigating the start of a family. And I'm hearing it more and more that not only is there a reluctance 
or a discomfort when women are making more than men um, in a relationship, but it's actually hurting relationships. That particular couple, they ended up breaking up. And she's heard plenty of other stories like that from her mentees. And some newer survey data shows younger millennial men have more traditional views about women staying home than a previous generation did. But data on this topic can be contradictory. I just saw a survey from the website Fairy Godboss about money in heterosexual relationships. According to that survey, the vast majority of women and men say they would choose to be in a long-term relationship with someone who earned a lot more than they did. But when the question was flipped, would you choose to be in a long-term relationship with someone who earns a lot less than you, 80% of men said sure, only 51% of women did. There was an interesting piece in Refinery29 last year about millennial women's discomfort with being the main breadwinner in their relationships. On the other hand, some of you told me you earn more than your husband or boyfriend and that it's fine or great. One listener said it did feel like a lot of pressure being the main earner, but that she and her husband were true partners, each bringing different strengths to the relationship. A few of you said it had taken some getting used to this dynamic, but that it was working well for your family. Someone else said she loved earning more and her boyfriend was happy because he loved his low-paying job. Talking of support, Diane is the main breadwinner in her partnership. I'm actually married to a woman and it is amazing. I love her very much and she has a job but not a full-time job. So she is in the entertainment industry and she works on TV sets. And so consequently, she has hiatus from time to time. Um, that she has time off to really do a lot of projects around the house. And overall, though, she is the one taking care of the household. I work longer hours and full-time and travel. And she does the grocery shopping. She does the cooking. She packs my lunch every day. Um, She makes wonderful dinners. We have a dog. We have no children. Uh, She takes care of the dog, who's a senior dog. But she also does all of the cleaning. She does the house maintenance, and we have a very nurturing and loving relationship. It's so interesting because it does sound fantastic, but I mean, I mean, you literally, you, you truly do have a wife, she's your wife, but you also have a traditional wife. In other words, the person that looks after everything outside of work. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> quite happy about it. I know my my mother often says to me, what, what would you do if you and Sharon weren't together? And I was like, I would have to hire full-time staff. Like I would have to have a house cleaner and a cook and a car mechanic and um, so a handyman. So yeah, I am, I feel very fortunate. It's just a really nice balance for the two of us. And she's doing what she loves and she likes what she does in her career, but also she is, she loves to be home and she really, you know, wants to contribute in a way that's meaningful for our family to be healthy and happy. I never feel guilty for my success and for what I need to do for my job. And it's, it takes the stress completely out of any of those moments. I feel really grateful. But what about couples who both work full time? Studies suggest that in many same-sex couples, there's a more equitable division of labor at home than there is in heterosexual couples. The study I looked at online was by the Families and Work Institute from 2015. And what they found was that among male and female couples, gender, 
income and hours worked predicted who did more stereotypically male chores versus female chores at home, and that included childcare. And in same-sex couples, they found that income and hours worked, those weren't reliable guarantees of how each half of the couple spent their time at home. It was notable how much more likely same-sex couples were to share routine childcare and sick childcare. In male-female working couples, the woman was much likelier to be the one spending most time with kids. I corresponded with a listener in England about this. She's in her late 20s, and she told me she and her wife share pretty much everything at home. And she says they're equally supportive of each other's careers. She told me each of them had talked about moving abroad for the other's job. Diane says among the female dual learner couples in her life... I will say what I love about a lot of these relationships is just the the care and nurture with which they're having, you know, how they're conducting their lives. They're, especially with women, we in general tend to be more caretakers, nurturers. And so consequently, when you're in a healthy relationship with another woman, at least the women that I know, there is a lot more give and take and a lot more flexibility. And there's not the competition or the the threat and the worry that you're being perceived as weaker than or not as not enough or not as good because the other person is successful. I think it's kind of like how you operate even in the workplace. When you set your ego aside and it's really about all all of you rising together and everyone doing well and the the collaborative team environment and really complimenting and being excited about your colleagues or your team members who are successful and growing that I mean that when everyone's doing well everyone's happier and it's a, a much more pleasant environment to work in and to live in coming up how do you achieve that kind of equilibrium in a partnership and why flattery is so important both at work and at home I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Aviva Wittenberg Cox is a Canadian who spent most of her adult life in Europe. She lived in Paris for 30 years. Now she's based in London. She runs a company called 21st. It works with businesses to get their leadership teams more balanced, gender-wise. She's been on the show a couple of times before, and our conversations have always been stimulating. The first time was in episode 41, Stop Fixing Women, Start Fixing Companies. Her latest book is a bit of a departure from her usual theme of gender in business. It's called Late Love, Mating in Maturity. Aviva married in her late 20s, had her first child at 30. She and her husband both had successful careers. But in her 40s, she began to feel restless and unfulfilled. At 50, she left her marriage. Five years later, she's remarried and living in a new country. Her experience got her thinking and writing about how dual career couples weather the years together, how their relationship changes over time, who supports whom, 
and in what way? Before the book came out, uh, you wrote this piece in the Harvard Business Review that came out last October. And the title is, If You Can't Find a Spouse Who Supports Your Career, Stay Single. Can you talk about that? for a minute it was total clickbait for me <laughs> obviously the editors or hbr are pretty good because i didn't write that title it's it's actually less prescriptive um that it sounds it's simply something i've noticed is for all the successful career women i have tracked as i watch their careers evolve um i have noticed that that was the choice they ended up with in life that either their partners were really excited by their success and helped them and were, you know, full partners in applauding and championing them. Um, The other kind of partner that some of them had were, you know, a little bit more challenged by their success or uh, resented a little bit the limelight that their wives enjoyed. Those were the kind of partners and marriages that ended up breaking up. And so it's not that I'm telling women to uh, check all this out before they hitch up, but inevitably, and and it's very hard to predict because you don't, even the men involved, I think, don't necessarily know ahead of time how they're going to react if their wives really hit the big times. When you were researching the book, you mentioned in this piece in particular that you you were you were talking to women of various different ages because one of the things I was going to ask you is well is this just relevant to people who are in their 50s who are, who are like you who did did things you know the right way the way women are told we're supposed to do it get married fairly young have kids while you're still fertile and then you know you go on and have a great life together is it is this only relevant to people who have who have done that and are now looking around them in their 50s say and or, or 60s or are there younger women you met who are facing some of the things that that you faced? Um, Well, I think we all face it, right? Whether or not you're going to transition through relationships or make your relationship stick is always a question, no no matter where you are in life. So uh, part of the book is about learning to transition better through relationships, how to leave well um, and how to love better the next time around. What do you learn from every relationship that you can grow and get deeper and get more of what you and the other person need in your next relationship? So it's mostly a book that um, explores and validates the whole idea that transitioning emotionally and in our personal lives might become uh, a little more common Um, as it is in our professional lives. We used to stick to one career or one job or one employer for many decades. That has changed quite dramatically. I think we might see a sort of parallel evolution uh, in our emotional lives and on the partner front. Although I note that um, despite what the media keeps saying, among the educated, divorce rates have plummeted over the last 30 years. And what the book is pointing out is that the only increase in divorce is in this age group of the 50s and 60s. And I do think that most women do choose, if they can, to stay pretty committed during the child-raising years because that's what the priority is, is to get those kids whole and healthy and grown. But then, then the choice becomes a little bit more what's good for me. She says in her own marriage, her former husband was supportive of her career in all the ways he thought he could be and uh, was raised to be. I do think that there's a slightly threatening element 
which is largely unconscious for I think many of the men I interviewed, is yeah when their wives start you know when the dinner party chatter starts always focusing on the wife's career or the wife's themes. I also work in gender issues, which is kind of a hot button topic at any dinner party. Um, people can understandably get a little bit tired of that, um, and I do think that. We are, you know, my husband was very focused on the family um, and wanted to draw more attention to the family at a phase when I think the kids were growing up and leaving uh, and it was time to refocus on the couple. And we didn't do that well enough in my mind and, you know, wasn't as interested in exploring those opportunities as I was. Mm -hmm. So, and I think what I've heard you know, I think these boomer men were were raised in to with a very different set of expectations to work hard, to be breadwinners, to be responsible co-parents, all of which they do, right? But they have not been raised to be emotionally open, sensitive, intimate, and sharing. And in our later years, when we're mating in maturity, I think that's what a lot of older women are yearning for. Deeper, broader, more intimate. You do talk actually about, um, a pl- I think you were at a dinner party or something where there was an age range of people, or you said women from 35, women from 35 to 74. Uh, you, were at, uh, you were at a dinner with eight highly successful women, but you know, one had a promotion in another country, had really struggled to get her husband to join her. Another had decided that to save her marriage, she had to essentially take a sabbatical and go back to school because she didn't think the marriage had room for two careers. And there were other stories like that. So maybe it isn't just happening with the, maybe this is still happening across the board, even with younger couples. Yeah, well, the whole dual career issue is absolutely fraught, right? Especially with uh, a corporate world that's asking more and more and more of its people. And then you throw in a few kids into the mix. And two corporate careers in parallel are almost impossible. My next HBR blog is about um, different models of family careers that would work better than these two kind of competitive parallel tracks. Um, But I think you have to be clearer than most couples are about how are we going to manage two great, you know, two successful careers? What are the terms of engagement? What kind of support do we need from each other? What kind of timings do we want to be? What kind of parents do we want? What are all the rules of engagement? And to make them as explicit as possible so that there aren't any kind of misunderstandings. Because, yeah, I think very commonly um, I teach a, an MBA class uh, at HEC in France and what struck me when I did a little survey about their expectations is all these kids who are an average age of 28 um, come from traditional families, parents, so bread earner, father, caretaker, mother, for 80% of them. And all of them, 80% of them, expect to be in dual career couples with two kids. And that's not that easy to design successfully And some of, I think, what I'm pointing to later, what happens in the 50s is that resentments that have built up over decades sometimes come out much later. You know, it's fine. You park your priorities for a while. You focus in on, you know, work and career and getting children raised. But then it's, yeah, it's absolutely the quality of the couple underlying um, those decades that then comes to roost, I think, in your later years. 
It's interesting that you mentioned your class because I was going to say, I think a lot of us think, well, you know, guys in their 20s, they're so enlightened. Like they're going to be totally, totally supportive partners and on board with with a truly egalitarian relationship. But that isn't, studies don't necessarily support that view, which I'm always depressed to read. Um, yeah, no, I think the issue is... I find very often women want to marry up and men are still a little bit readier to marry down because they realize that if they want to give their careers priority, um, having a serious career woman at their side might not be what they want. Women tend to have a very different point of view that they want a spouse or partner who is at least as educated and successful and intelligent as them. So I think there's already, even primed at the beginning, some disequilibrium. And the fact that we still... Uh, tend to marry somebody. Women tend to marry men slightly older than them, almost across the board, which gives them this really, in, in, you know, what seems to be an infinitesimal advantage at the beginning, but then keeps growing over time. So if he's a few years older than you are, often when the children come, he'll be a little bit uh, higher paid, when then the choices of whose career should take the lead is often a financial one, and then you give it to the guy because he's earning a little bit more, and then, and then, and then, and it keeps um, uh, accumulating over life. Uh, and I think you just have to watch that kind of thing. Also, on all the uh, parenting studies we see, like in countries like in the UK, where parental leave is, is starting to replace maternity leave, um, men are encouraged to take as much time as they like. And the pickup among men has been very low, in part because the world isn't changing as fast as men and women are, right? The laws, the legislation, the company policies. You know, today, I think it's easier still for women to take some flexibility at work and not get career punished for it, right? We've made some degree of uh, progress in flexibility for women around maternity leave. What we can't say is that men are very much condoned and allowed to take their parental leave and encouraged to do so. That usually signals still, unless you're in a very enlightened workplace, that you're not that committed to their work, to their work or at least that's the way their bosses, their boomer bosses still interpret it. So, you know, we're still catching up. And the beginning, I've always said the 21st century is, the 20th century was the rise of women. The 21st century is the adaptation of everybody else to that rise, companies, uh, countries, and men. And it's it's going to be a little complicated, right? It's going to take a few more generations. People who keep thinking that this is you know going to happen in one generation, no way. Men are going to take generations, as it took women, generations to get these new models into our minds, and we're still not entirely there. It will be the same for men. We're in a massive shift in what does masculinity mean, how, what is it to be a good man? I think young men are quite confused. Um, women aren't always helping them <laughs> understand. So yeah, we've got a lot of work still to do. I told Aviva about my conversation with Diane Reichenberger and the story she was hearing from her mentees, that many of their boyfriends were reluctant to commit to a woman who earned more than they did. That's a harsh reality that too many women forget uh, about men, which I think the author, Michael Kimmel, who you might know, is very good at underlining repeatedly. It's the issue for men is not what women 
think of them or judge them. It's how other men react to them. And right now, yeah, other men would react very negatively and judgmentally to some guy who makes less than his wife. And they would joke about it and make him feel small and uncomfortable. Um, and if that's how you start, you can imagine how, as women's careers get increasingly successful, how it's going to end, right? If he's uncomfortable with your bigger salary in your 20s, he's going to be even more uncomfortable with it in your 30s, 40s, and 50s. I'm curious, you have a son who's in his 20s. Do you know how he feels about all this? Yeah, well, I do think that our sons are exceptionally well-educated in this matter. Uh, and I, I think he's a very enlightened young man, and I count very much on his ability to manage um, strong, intelligent women. It's certainly what he's looking for. So, And I don't think that he would have an issue with a differential in pay. Although, you know, he's a very competitive young man. So it, again, may be sometimes stronger than we think, right? Towards the end of her book, Aviva lists some strategies she recommends for couples to try. And this kind of underlines her assertion that there are parallels between our work lives and our personal lives. She says as partners, we need to use vision, active listening and feedback, which she also calls flattery. Most of us do this at work all the time. We know how to build teams and motivate people. We just never use those same leadership skills at home. So all I'm suggesting is um, do the same thing you would do with your team, right? Build a vision, align on what that vision is. Do you share it? Is everybody bought into the vision? Uh, how far forward is that vision going to take you? And I think for couples, it's good to go a little further than they usually do, not just the next two or three three years, but the next two or three decades is an interesting conversation to have. The whole active listening piece, I think, is really important for both men and women. Um, they often say, when you look at some of the research, that at home women don't feel heard um, and men don't feel appreciated. So that's what these two points is. Active listening is really for women. Just sit down, listen to your partner carefully, give them time and attention, look at them in the eyes, put the phones and the children away. Um, have regular appointments where you can be really heard. Active listening means you actually have a structured conversation where you feed back what you heard to check if that's actually what the person said, which remarkably often it isn't. People hear their partners often through a veil of interpretation. So this kind of structured listening can be very helpful. And the last point of feedback is, you know, when partners don't feel appreciated, they get very demotivated, just like people on your team do. Flattery, feedback, positive admiration, stroking, and lots of it is wonderful at work and very underutilized by managers. It's even better at home. People just want to be worshipped, adored, and admired do it. It's free. It doesn't cost anything. And it saves you a lifetime of frustrated partners who don't feel like you're properly seeing them. I think you said something like five times as many positive things as, quote, constructive comments. <laughs> in other words, negative comments. Yeah, I mean, and this is a part of what you see in couples, unfortunately, right, is they get, you know, any couple goes through some kind of disappointments and frustrations with the other half. Living with another human being is always a, an adaptive process, right? Uh, and too often, I think, and this is for women particularly, you know, when we don't 
feel appreciated, we can get, become pretty passive aggressive. We can start complaining, rolling our eyes, criticizing, um, and turning very negative. And men often react to that just by stonewalling and shutting down a little bit. That's a pattern you see in too many couples, right? Whereas um, a little bit more serious sitting down and actually asking for what you want, which is difficult for a lot of women. We have not been raised to ask for what we want. Um, is a much better way out of that kind of pattern. And as soon as you get yourself into negative patterns, they tend to escalate pretty fast and you dig yourself into ruts. So um, one of the joys of late love is that you begin to understand your own patterns and how you co-create patterns with another human being you live with and how to become much more intentional about shifting out of them if you need to. Aviva Wittenberg-Cox. I'm going to be releasing a mini show next week, an extra that sprang from my conversation with Aviva. It's about the cultural differences around masculinity and femininity. This from a woman who lived in France till just recently. It really got me thinking, but it was too off topic to include in this episode. Before we go, I want to tell you about a compelling new podcast series I think you'll enjoy. It's personal and raw, and a lot of it happens on a ship at the bottom of the world. It's called This Is Our Time, and the first season takes you on a journey to Antarctica. Lots of women scientists together on that ship for three weeks, facing questions about climate change, about leadership, and about themselves. And at one point in episode seven, an advocate for the oceans, a well-known man, he comes aboard to give a talk, and one of the women hits him up with a question about the barriers female scientists face. So we talk a lot here about the need for women to play bigger roles, to have a strong voices, and we have trained ourselves. We take sustainability, climate change seriously. What do you think needs to happen to see more women out there? Like, so what's your take on this? What do you want for your daughter? What needs to happen? And he doesn't really answer her. Instead, he veers off into a story. So we arrived in the Maldives, and we started this swim across the whole country. A story about how self-belief will get you where you want to go. He screwed up. But amazingly, he admitted it. I think I did the complete wrong thing and didn't properly acknowledge, you know, some of the very serious glass ceilings impacting women in science. If you want to hear the rest of this story or start at the beginning of this eight-episode serialized storytelling podcast, search for This Is Our Time podcast. You can find it in Apple Podcasts or in Radio Public if you're an Android user. And you can subscribe to my show in those places as well. Please keep telling your friends about the broad experience and ask them to subscribe. Independent podcasters need all your support to build our listenership. It truly does make a difference. You can follow me on Twitter at Ashley Milne-Tite, without the hyphen. Sign up for the bi-monthly newsletter at thebroadexperience.com and join the discussions we have on the show's Facebook page. If you have an idea for a show, get in touch with me at ashley at thebroadexperience.com. A lot of great show ideas have come from you. I'm Ashley Milne-Tite. Thanks for listening. <laughs>